Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, I was reading a report from HSBC this morning uh, that showed that millennials expect to retire at age 59, which is two years younger than the working age average of 61, and seems rather remarkable in an era of inc- incredibly low benchmark yields. I want to bring in Peter Fendler for some perspective. Peter Fendler is a principal at Hub International New England LLC based in Portland, Maine, who focuses on retirement accounts and advising people. And how likely do you think it is that this current generation of upcoming workers will be able to retire at age 59? I think it's really unlikely, uh, given the fact that we're living longer and we're saving less than we ever have. What's more realistic? I think 70 is the, the, new, the new 65. And, um, you know, we're sitting with uh, participants in retirement plans and looking at their average account balance and trying to project forward what they should be able to retire on. There's a pretty large disconnect between what they have what they need and what they think they need. You know, Peter, I wonder if you could just offer people a little bit of an insight into your business and also the changes that you have seen in your business. I mean, you uh, were independent and now you're part of uh, Commonwealth's you know, family of uh, uh, advisors. And, um, uh, and Hub International is, uh, of course, uh, made the acquisition. I wonder if you could just describe your role and how it has changed over the last couple of years and, and what's foremost in your mind. Um, I think there's a lot of consolidation going on and there's going to be a narrowing of, of what we do uh, as retirement plan advisors uh, under the, the new realm of the fiduciary rule that's been promulgated recently. Um, still in its finalization, but assuming it, it maintains its current form, there are going to be a lot of advisors that um, make the election to get out of this business because of that? the risk. Um, I think there's going to be... Uh, we've got a conflict of interest that's inherent in the way that our retirement plan advisory work happens right now where there's uh, commission-based resources and and compensation formulas as well as fee-based. And the fiduciary rule really attacks the commission-based variable pay element of what's going on. And it it puts a premium on being a fee-based advisor such as ourselves. Um, so to that extent, I think uh, with that increased liability under a, a commission-based relationship with uh, compensation, you're going to see those advisors that don't want to move to a fee base or are not prepared to or don't have the infrastructure to go to that direction um, perhaps exit the market. Well, let's, let's ask a question that might seem basic, but are so many advisors for retirement, are they necessary? Is, it, is, a, is a certain consolidation important? Right. I think there is. Uh, I think it's a great question. I think there are a lot of advisors that have two or three plans that aren't really expert in the retirement plan space, but um, they have a friend that has a company and they become the advisor just through kind of convenience and, and relationship. 
but um, with the fiduciary standards that are coming out now and the attention on fiduciary capability, um, it's, it's going to be one of those things where it gets rolled up to people that are expert in that space. So how small do you expect this industry to become? In other words, can you give us some perspective on how big it is now and how small you expect it to become? I, that's a good question. I don't. I really don't know how large uh, the advisor community is. But I think it's reasonable to expect that there's shrinkage in the, in the realm of 20 to 30, maybe even 40%. That's a lot. Yeah, I think, well, where, there are where, where do those assets go? I think they will remain with advisors, but with advisors that do a lot more of the work that are specialized in the retirement plan space. So where is the area? Is there a specific specialized territory where advisors are really necessary uh, with respect to people crafting retirement plans? I don't think so. I think it's uh, up and down the market. So it's, it's uh, not specific to a certain industry. It's not specific to a, uh, a size of a company. Um, if you are an employer and you are launching a 401k plan or 403b plan in the nonprofit space, it's a complex world and it's not one of those things that you really want to do for yourself. And employers are fiduciaries and they're looking to offset that fiduciary responsibility by hiring a co-fiduciary through 321 or 338 relationships, which we, we are actually providing on the 321 level. This sounds expensive. Is it's, it getting more expensive? Actually, it's getting less expensive. Um, How much does it cost? <laughs> so that, that's a really good question, <laughs> and it's a complex answer. What's happening is there's so much attention on fees that, that there's been a continual compression of costs. And what we're doing and within our organization is saying, look, here is our baseline uh, set of services that uh, where we're acting as a fiduciary at the plan level, helping you with plan design, with fund selection, fund monitoring, and, and education on fiduciary standards. Those things, that's one fee set. And it's based upon our liability as an advisor uh, and the size of the plan. The other is, do you want us to act as a fiduciary for your employees, helping them with education, investment selection, one-on-one -on -one advice? Um, and the fee for that is really time sensitive. How much are we doing? How, how often are we sitting with your employees? It sounds like, but it sounds like at least the, the, that, the, the, the latter scenario um, is, uh, is you know, part of the whole education process and is uh, considered to be a positive if you can afford it. Yeah. It is, and I think employers need to kind of change it from a fee space to an investment space because what's happening in the United States, going back to Lisa's original question, is that Americans are underfunded for retirement. We're woefully underfunded, and uh, we're kind of going along, going forward, and if we stay that way and don't have enough money to retire, we won't, which has the upstream of a higher cost for employees and employers by employees not retiring on time. Well, we'd all like to retire on time. I want to thank you very much for helping us. Uh, Peter Fendler, he is a principal, Hub International, New England. We're broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network's 2017 Retirement Symposium in Boston.
while oil has been on a wild ride of late. Uh, just days ago, it was above $50 a barrel. Now it's down to $47 a barrel. Uh, despite news that Saudi Arabia is tightening the screws on Qatar as punishment for its ties to Iran. And I want to bring in Javier Blas, who's our chief energy correspondent for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking to us. Come just Set the stage for us. Why did Saudi Arabia take these measures against Qatar? What exactly are uh, the exact parameters of these measures? Well, uh, over the last few years, the, uh, the relations between Saudi Arabia and Qatar has been strained for a number of reasons, in part because Qatar supports the Muslim Brotherhood, a movement that uh, Saudi Arabia does not, uh, in part because... Uh, uh, Qatar has been trying to add as a mediator between the um, uh, conservative countries in the, uh, in the in the Gulf, the Arab conservative countries in the Gulf, like Saudi Arabia, and on the other side, Iran, and also because of Al Jazeera, the Doha-based uh, television station that um, Qatar controls and has been quite critical of the Saudi regime. Those uh, uh, disagreements have been in crescendo over the last few months, and they, uh, they erupted into uh, a crisis last week, and now it's uh, Saudi Arabia is retaliating and uh, getting several other countries behind it, severing relations between um, itself and, and, and Doha. That is something unprecedented because uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar, in theory, are on the same side uh, in the Gulf Cooperation uh, Council, and also because both, can both countries are close allies of Washington. So it's a, it's a very unusual situation in the Middle East. Well, I was just looking at some of the headlines of the newspapers in the Middle East, Javier, and uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar armed terror to spread chaos. Uh, Iran is encouraging Qatar to leave the Six-Nation Gulf Cooperation Council and so on. And then you have uh, also the same kind of thing in Saudi Arabia, and the response of the, of, in Qatar is, bark as you wish, Qatar won't change its principles. Uh, isn't the United States have a huge military presence just outside of Doha? It does, and, uh, and you are absolutely right, and that's what I was uh, emphasizing. It's a very unusual situation in which, when you see two Middle East nations uh, or, or one one group of Middle East nations led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and, and one side and the other side Qatar because uh, b the both sides of, of these confrontations have close links with uh, the United States. Uh, Washington has a huge military operation, a military air base just on the outskirts of Doha. The Central Command that uh, oversees all the operations in the Middle East and also in Afghanistan like 10, is based... 10,000, like more than well, 10,000 troops. Yes, there's 10,000 well, troops, a huge uh, air base, and, and the central command that oversees all the operations in the Middle East and Afghanistan. All of that is based in Qatar. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's put this in perspective. So Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates uh, and Egypt said they will all suspend air and sea travel to and from Qatar. Uh, what prompted this action now? I mean, did, did President Trump's visit to the Middle East have anything to do with this? 
Uh, was in part that um, uh, probably there was there was a, a bit of a link of that because I think that the the Saudi authorities have felt more uh, in a stronger position after after the Trump visit uh, to take a more um, aggressive or, a, or 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 a more confrontational stance towards towards Qatar. There were also some comments carried by Qatari state-owned media and attributed to the Emir, um, criticizing the. The Saudis authorities during the the Trump visit. Uh, very quickly, those comments were deleted from Qatari media, and and the Qataris they said that those those were not real comments, that they were uh, the, the 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 work of a hacker. But uh, very few people believe that explanation in Saudi Arabia. So right. really, a couple of events after the Saudi uh, the, the the Trump visit to to Saudi Arabia really triggered this crisis. So let's talk about the market effects here, because the initial effect was that crude values rose, ostensibly from the expectation that Qatar would be unable to ship as much crude and therefore that it would crimp supply to some degree. That gain has been absolutely erased and then some. What's going on here? Well, uh, it's, it's a very ca- classic um, spike in the oil market when we have some kind of geopolitical noise um, during trading hours in Asia. The immediate reaction is just to buy buy futures just in case something really goes really bad. But immediately has become very clear today that the oil is continuing flowing from Qatar. That's about 600 <clears throat> excuse me, 600,000 barrels a day. Um, and the same with the LNG, which is a much, much more significant proportion of global supplies. So at the moment, I don't see any significant impact in the oil market unless this crisis really escalates. Well, we're going to leave it there, but boy, this is going to be a story that continues. And also, you have the issues of whether the OPEC nations are mindful and stick to their limits in terms of production, because that was something that also is looking to be renewed. Well, and this also raises the question, what are the standards for some of these Middle Eastern uh, nations to sanction each other or not? I mean, it sort of seems uh, a little bit out of the blue. Um, Cutting ties with a country that hosts an airbase that has more than 10,000 U.S. personnel. What can you say? I want to now bring in George Ferguson, our aerospace defense expert when it comes to Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, George, I want you to give us just perhaps a preview of what you understand the president may be speaking about in just a few moments having to do with privatization of the air traffic control system. Hey, Tim. Good morning. Yeah, we, uh, we expect the president to announce something of a privatization of air traffic control, a structure that's going to look pretty similar to uh, NAV Canada. And uh, essentially what it would do is um, create a, a separate entity that's probably going to that's supposed to be removed from uh, government bureaucracy to oversee both the day-to-day air traffic control as well as long-term investment in that uh, in the systems that support air traffic control. So, um, you know, we've we've heard that President Trump is laying out his vision uh, that it's going to include a separation of air traffic control operations from the Federal Aviation Administration. What's the biggest opposition to this? Uh, you know, I think that um, I don't know that there's a huge amount of opposition here. I think that there is a bunch of jockeying between the interested parties about who's going to pay in the future. Um, and so, who are the know, interested think, parties? Let's get a sense of, of sort of who's on what side here. 
Sure. So uh, interested party is going to be airlines, of course, would be the most interested party because they're most affected by air traffic control. But other users of airspace are going to be business aviation and general aviation. And so I think those three parties are trying to figure out who's going to pay. I think they'd all would probably agree that they want this air traffic control system out of the federal government because they're, they're modernization efforts that I think all of them would agree should have happened by now are going too slowly or at risk of not occurring the way they thought they would occur. Um, so again, I think what we have is a discussion about, okay, what's the right fee for the business aviation community to use, uh, pay? What's the right fee level for the airlines to pay? And then GA sort of uh, general aviation is, is in the mix too, but much less of a user. Hey, hey George, I want to know, is, is the air traffic control system in the United States, is it considered world class? No. No. It's not. No. So if you talk to some people, you know, I talk to some people at uh, different uh, groups uh, in D.C. that advocacy groups, and they'll tell you that you know they're still using paper strips with uh, airplane numbers on it, uh, to, you know, to line up airplanes for approach and departure at, at major airports. Um, some of the computing systems are 50 years old, um, so that's clearly not state of the art. And, and meanwhile, technology has evolved so that we can get a lot better information on each individual airplane. Instead of using radar, which we use now, we can have them uh, collect information on their speed and their exact location from GPS signals and then shoot that down to ground stations or even back up to satellites and provide air traffic controllers with a much better uh, picture of uh, the air traffic environment. And they can use that to space airplanes much closer and make make the system a lot more efficient. Um, so that's sort of where we're, we want to go. We're not there yet. We're still using radar and 50-year-old technology, computing technology. George, do you have a sense of how much it would cost to bring the U.S. aviation uh, system up to speed? Uh, um, so... Look, I think nobody really knows this number correctly. I'll tell you that the FAA says it's a $30 billion number, and they think that uh, roughly $30 billion, They think $15 billion of that is something the FAA has to spend, and the other $15 billion of that would be equipment in the airplanes. So the airplanes need this equipment to shoot out the signal that tells their direction, their speed, their exact location, uh, things like that. And the FAA yeah. – go ahead, sorry. No, I'm struck by the idea that it probably could save airlines money, no? I mean, basically, if things were more streamlined, they wouldn't have the delays. They wouldn't have to do the uh, vouchers as much to uh, compensate people who've gotten bumped in, uh, you know, off of really crowded planes because of delays. I mean, it seems like it would actually save money, and there could be some way of, you know, expediting this money-saving aspect. It, it, it would, and so the airlines are, they're the ones that have absolutely showed their cards. They're absolutely in favor of this privatization. Uh, if you look at some of their organizations like Airlines for America, which is the group organization that represents them, um, they've got papers out where they're absolutely in favor of getting air traffic control out of the federal government and into sort of a semi-private organization. George, is there any is there any precedent for doing this? Uh, so internationally, we do have some precedents for. I think uh, w one of the uh, more prominent ones is um, is NAV Canada, uh, and you know, so NAV Canada was spun out of the federal government. Um, airline, actually, airspace users, including the majority funded by the airlines, pay the fees. Uh, for air traffic control in Canada, they issue bonds to buy, you know, uh, 
capital equipment for long-term investment, and they pay those bonds off with excess user fees, and, and they're in a situation now where they're actually lowering fees. So it seems like in Canada, um, th this type of system has been quite effective. I think the airlines are looking at that thinking they'd love to have that. You know, George, I'm surprised that this is not already happening. And I'm wondering, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the problem with air traffic control in the U.S. What's being done right now, if anything, to sort of bring it up to speed? Yeah, so the FAA is marching down a um, marching down a road to modernize airspace. A lot of it is about this next-gen air traffic control and these systems on airplanes that will shoot their um, their coordinates to ground stations. Um, so it is being done. Uh, airlines are critical that it's being done slowly. Uh, if you read some of the position papers, they're very concerned that there's uh, not the maybe the project management skills that you uh, might find in a, in a more nimble private uh, organization inside the FAA. Uh, you know, there's concerns about how the FAA funds themselves. They have a they have a six billion dollar trust fund, and the um, and Congress sort of dips into that trust fund to pay for operational costs every year. So I think there's a lot of concern again about the skill set in FAA and about the funding, long-term funding, and that's the reason people want to see it out of there, but they are marching down the road trying to, trying to implement modernization. I just want to follow up on the funding issue, that uh, what makes anybody think that the private corporation is going to be more agile in terms of funding than the government? I thought the, the funding was, at least some members of uh, Congress have said the funding has been held up by Congress, and it's been intermittent, so that that's one of the reasons why that big revamp of the air traffic control system has been so sort of uh, caught up in, in a budgetary uh, uh, you know, turbulence. Yeah, the thought is is to get it away from some of the political influence of Congress, right? So uh, Congress sort of always always struggles with that uh, that challenge where somebody wants a bill done and a, and a you know a congressman from this state or that state wants to uh, improve their small airport and they try to pull money out of uh, some of these trust funds and such to to fix their small problem, which might not be a a big uh, you know a big issue in the in the broader scheme of things. And so I think it, the challenge is to get it out of the political um, arena so that funding can be set aside and and um, and projects prioritized by necessity rather than the political influence. And again, Congress is using what you'd consider sort of long-term funds, trust fund kind of money to fund operations. Um, you know, you could you could bring in consultants and perhaps optimize operations, improve computer systems, and uh, re reduce the cost of operating. Uh, Congress doesn't always have an incentive to do that either. So, yeah, George, when you talk about political considerations, I think about what Shannon Pettipiece said uh, just a, a few moments ago. Shannon Pettipiece is our White House correspondent for Bloomberg, and she was talking about all of the things that are going on right now. And uh, we are awaiting the president right now. That's right. We are awaiting the president who is expected to make remarks on this air traffic control reform initiative that we're talking about with George uh, Ferguson. George, why is President Trump coming out today with everything going on with infrastructure spending, although I suppose this could be part of infrastructure spending, uh, you know, with everything that's going on with his travel ban, et cetera, with tax reform? Um, why, why now? Is there something in particular that he is addressing? Uh, I mean, I think this is just 
part of his broader agenda, you know, maybe he said infrastructure was going to be an important part. You know, what we heard, I heard airline executives talking about this um, right after the election and even before he had made it to the White House, you know, he actually got uh, installed as president about this being a priority. So uh, it's been on his agenda. I think he's bringing it forward now. I mean, whether there's some timing around other news in the world that he's trying to distract from, uh, I'll let Shannon sort of answer those questions, but I think this has always been part of his agenda. And so uh, maybe he also thinks this is a bit uh, costless. He can get it done quicker um, and sort of get his agenda moving that way. But there may be some of that sort of thought process there, too. George, while we have you, though, I want to ask you something about the industry because I know you put out some original research today, and I wonder if you could tell us about production rates and uh, how uh, each of the individual companies, whether it's the Boeing with their 737 or the A320neo, if you could just give us an update on that. Yes, so from the airframers, Tim, we are – we, you know, Boeing and Airbus being the largest two uh, manufacturers of commercial airplanes in the world, they're both ramping up production of the A320-737, their narrow-body airplanes, which are their most important, most profitable airplanes, uh, which is good stuff for them long-term. Uh, you know, we're going to be at production rates that uh, uh, I think they're going to be around 50 for each company. Um, the... Uh, Again, these are sort of the, the prime moneymaker airplanes for these companies. Uh, and so longer term, it's very good news for their profitability and their cash flow. The challenge is short term. The, the, these are new versions of these airplanes that they're, they're introducing as they ramp up the A320neo and the 737 MAX. So there's some cost to the, uh, to the learning curve of building those airplanes. Uh, so we'll watch that. That probably hurts them a little bit through the uh, end of this year. But again, as they get those, the production of, the, of those airplanes down, um, that ought to help their profitability, cash flow. And what we're watching in these companies right now is wide-body demand. I'm seeing some rumors out today that Airbus may even cut production of the A380 more. Um, that airplane hasn't sold well. It's the biggest airplane in the world. It's a real challenge to get it into markets, you know, into into an airport, sell all those tickets, and fly into a single airport, not have to dilute the price you, you sell your tickets for to fill the airplane. So, so it's a, not surprising. We're getting ready to go into Farnborough Air Show, so we're going to watch those wide-body orders closely, especially 380. But the other two wide-bodies that are having challenges are the 330 and the 777, the 330 from Airbus and the 777 from Boeing. Generally, we're seeing, um, we're seeing weakness in long-haul ticket prices for you know overseas travel ticket prices and that means that airlines and lessors are less excited about taking the newest long-haul airplanes uh, the triple seven and the 330 don't have as much a backlog as, as some of the new airplanes that have just been introduced uh, so we keep watching that wide body space and trying yeah. to figure out when that's going to when the dynamic there is going to improve Thank you so much, George Ferguson. We really appreciate you uh, giving us the perspective as we await President Trump's comments uh, about air traffic control reform, which is badly needed in the United States. George Ferguson is our senior aerospace defense and airline analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
You know, despite the sell-off in municipal bonds at the end of last year, they have come roaring back. And there is a story on the Bloomberg today saying that U.S. state and local bonds are the priciest against treasuries since the recession. How are these figuring into people's uh, retirement plans? I want to bring in Marcy Supovitz, principal at Boulay, Donnelly & Supovitz Consulting Group in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Marcy, as we talk about President Trump's tax plan and how people should prepare for retirement, how much do do municipal bonds play into this because they are tax-free and they were a popular investment and they have been traditionally uh, popular investments for wealthy individuals who want to preserve that tax-free benefit uh, over the long term. Do you think that uh, these investments are still warranted because there will not likely be that much of a change to tax laws? Well, I think with, um, obviously, with a Republican White House as well as a Republican-controlled Congress, we are very likely to see some form of tax uh, reform Mm -hmm. over the next couple of years. um, So it's probably not so much a question of uh, if, it's a question of when. Uh, we, We don't know at this point, big unknown, exactly what that will look like. If... um, if the rules are changed in the way that uh, that would meet Trump's goals, his biggest tax reduction is on the corporate side of things, right? Moving from a 35% rate down to about 15%. Um, it's very difficult to tell at this point how the, his tax plan will affect individuals because it's very light on specifics. Um, we don't have much detail there. So he, he wants to reduce the number of tax brackets. He wants to raise the uh, exemptions. He wants to eliminate certain deductions. So it's very hard to judge without specifics whether uh, people's taxes are going to go down so much that municipal bonds wouldn't play much of a role. So, so this, this creates kind of a problem if you're advising clients, right? Because you have to have long-term planning, and if there's a high likelihood that there will be some kind of tax reform, mm-hmm. which will tr- probably change the investing dynamic for wealthier individuals or anyone who's planning for retirement, mm-hmm. how do you come up with an, some advice? Well, that's a very good question, Lisa. It's very hard to plan in, in this environment uh, Specifically, as it relates to municipal bonds, I do think for the average uh, well-off investors, there's still going to be a place for that. I think the, the bigger issue we see with tax reform is how the changes might affect uh, middle America because of possible changes to IRAs and 401ks and the tax preferences that they have. There's got to be some way to pay for the uh, major tax cuts that Trump wants for corporations. And retirement plans tend to be a big, juicy target there because of their current tax preferences and because of the way the government currently scores revenue. They only look at a 10-year period. Wait, wait, hold on a second. Does this mean that you think that there probably uh, will be some kind of increase to the amount that the uh, Roth IRAs and the 401ks are taxed? Um... No, uh, that, that's, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Um, but there have been suggestions that the limits on contributions perhaps be cut back to help pay for corporate tax reductions. There have been suggestions that instead of allowing people to contribute on a pre-tax basis, 
that they only contribute on an after-tax Roth basis because today that increases revenue and allows the government uh, scoring, which only looks at a 10-year period, to pay for the corporate tax cuts. That's our concern. Marcy, uh, I know that you've done work for the uh, American uh, Retirement Retirement. Association. You've testified before Congress about the fiduciary rule and so on. What is the most pressing issue that you would like to bring to the attention of the industry, whether it's rollovers, whether it's whatever, that you feel uh, strongly? Because sometimes you just can only get one thing in people's minds and get everyone behind. What would that be? Are you talking specifically regarding the fiduciary yeah. well, rules? No, no, it could be anything in your, in your particular industry because you kind of you have a broad understanding of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, looking at the fiduciary rules, I think a lot of people are very much in agreement with the concept, do everything in the best interest of the client. I think the problem lies in the execution because the way those rules were written, the oversight is in the plaintiff attorney's hands. And, uh, and that's something we would certainly like to see changed. On the uh, tax reform front, we hope that most members of Congress can um, understand that the retirement tax preferences aren't permanent deductions the way mortgage interest is that that money comes back into the system when people take their money out of retirement plans, it's taxable at that point. It's just the government scoring doesn't look at it that way. So those are two things, I know you asked for one, but uh, two things that we're really focused on. How are you advising clients at a time of pretty low interest rates across the board when you do have an increasing number, certainly of pensions, going into riskier and riskier assets, and you have investors who, uh, you have individuals who have to save up bigger and bigger cushions for the, uh, the, the age that they're trying to get to, to retire, which is getting older and older. What do you advise them? What's the biggest you know, uh, concern that you have as far as people sort of ignoring some of the risks versus uh, the potential rewards? Well, I think as we all know, it's all about um, the time horizon. So for young people who are investing for retirement today and have a lot of years uh, before they're going to actually access that money, they have a lot of time to ride those ups and downs. And if you look at the market historically, we know that over longer periods of time, the the trend is up, right? So for people who um, are much closer to retirement, it's very difficult in this low interest rate environment to uh, take out a lot of risk and yet um, get the returns you need. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Marcy Sapovitz is uh, the principal at Boulay Donnelly and Sapovitz Consulting Group, and they are experts when it comes to retirement planning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.